3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It's Inez and Priya and Spike in the studio. Morning, Inez. Good morning, morning, guys. Good morning. It is the 21st of September. We are entering hot everyone spring. El Nino has been <laughs> announced. Uh, so just starting off on an exciting and very good and normal note. Bit scary yesterday. Yeah. Very scary, actually, for the people that live in towers. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to be talking about that in the headlines, um, about the housing uh, announcement that the Andrews government put out yesterday, Victoria's big housing statement, which um, proposes a lot, but uh, as we're hoping to discuss uh, across our next few shows, um, you know, raises some real serious concerns about um, how this is going to be delivered and impacts communities uh, who are now kind of sitting in limbo being like, when are we going to be next? Um, But we've got a big show on a full show this week. And so we're going to start off with the third part of last week's conversation with Professor Katerina Tewa in Itinturungare Bantes to discuss the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banaban and the fight by Bonabans for reparations and an end to extraction. And this conversation occurs in the context of a recent push by Australian mining company Centrex, which is sought to con- conduct phosphate prospecting activities on the island under the greenwashing premise of rehabilitation. And we'll remind you where you can listen back to the first two parts of that episode as well and have information about their petition in our show notes. Uh, and after that, We are going to be joined by Ellie from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism to talk about an upcoming protest event that CARF is holding to drive the Nazis out of so-called Melbourne. So a few weeks ago, we had fellow CARF member Jasmine on to discuss this upcoming rally. But since then, we've seen some successful anti-fascist resistance to attempted neo-Nazi intimidation of a fundraiser event last Friday at Cafe Gummo in Thornbury. So today, Ellie's going to continue the discussion about the importance of a broad-based anti-fascist resistance and let us know about the speak out that was held this past Tuesday at Gummo. Yeah. And to remind listeners about the details of the protest coming up this Saturday, the 23rd. And they should also be congratulated, like, um, just quickly. I think that's, you know, over the years, I've, the the whole Nazi, the, the fascist thing's been a real problem for people that, you know, for people who, who, who respect people's rights and um, want to live as a community. And I think they've reached out, like, the campaign against racism mm-hmm. and fascism's been an amazing, it's been an amazing success, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. And just, like, massive shout-out to Sharp, Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice, who uh, were there doing, you know, boots-on-the-ground community defence at, at Gummo. And, yeah, that's incredibly important to remember and we'll chat so much more about it and next up we will have mary mccabe am who is a ceo of dementia australia and a member of the organization's board 
A recognised leader in health and aged care sectors, Marie brings more than 20 years' experience across health, mental health and aged care sectors. She joins us today for Dementia Action Week 2023 from the 18th to the 24th of September, which actually includes World Alzheimer's Day on Thursday 21st, to talk about stigma, discrimination and a lack of awareness of dementia. Um, and we'll also be joined by Xavier Dupree from the National Union of Students, who's, sorry, the Education Officer from the National Union of Students, um, who's going to talk to us about how the Greens backflip on the Housing Affordability Future Fund, the support for that affects their campaigning because the NUS supported the rent cap, the rent cap, sorry. Um, yeah, and just to talk, and I guess it gives us the opportunity to talk about um, yesterday's announcement and housing, federal government for housing policy in general. And then finally, oh, also, yeah. should I? Yeah, go for so, it. So yeah, we also will um, lucky enough to have a conversation with Izzy Brown, like one of the legendary local community organisers in Melbourne. Um, they launched the Resident Frequency Recording Studio um, at the on the Collingwood Housing Estate, which is a, um, a community controlled, autonomous, um, free. Uh, an inclusive space for people to go and record and, and uh, you know, f- you know, uh, yeah, start their own projects, I guess. And she sat down with us and had a conversation to talk about the launch and any future plans and programs they're going to be running out of there. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really excited to hear about that and just like love to bring it back to grassroots community work that people are doing in the local community where 3CR is based. Can I just say, sorry, yeah. so I just think yesterday's announcement for me also highlighted the lack of community input into decision making. And that's that's the most glaring thing is that our assets, mm-hmm. we have ha- no say into how they're managed. Mm-hmm. And and that's what, that, sorry, for, but no, Izzy's, no. The pro, like Izzy's project, the way it's brought down back to the people that are involved have a say. In, in how it's run and, and, mm-hmm. and the, yeah, I think that's a really important thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's a huge contrast between, I guess, yesterday's announcement, which is very top-down, um, and the kind of work that people like Izzy are doing in the community, which is bottom-up and horizontal. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks, Spike. No worries. Amazing. So we have a big show, as always, and we'll come back to you in a sec with news headlines. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to a 3CR when you're on it. Until now, the Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Back with the news headlines for Thursday, the 21st of September. So first up, and yet another attack on public housing, the Victorian government yesterday announced plans to demolish and redevelop Melbourne's 44 high-rise public housing flats. The state government says new developments will increase social housing across the sites by 10%, but serious concerns have been raised about whether the sites will remain publicly owned and managed. Inner Melbourne Community Legal said the announcement has sent shockwaves to tenant communities, saying they've heard from tenants who are, quote, confused, stressed, and unsure of what their future holds. The Andrews government has a history of replacing public housing with privately managed social housing at reduced proportions than initially promised, something the Greens have labelled, quote, privatisation by stealth, end quote. 
In related news, the government's housing policy released yesterday also announced a shift in decision-making powers and management of some developments, from local councils to state government. In what the government claims will speed up the, the development process, developments worth 50 million, um, 50 million in Melbourne and 15 million in regional Victoria will now be overseen by the state. The, re- the response to the announcements are telling, with private interest groups saying, such as the Property Council of Australia and the Master Builders uh, Victoria welcoming the move. That's not a surprise, is it? <laughs> really. While publicly, while publicly interested experts and advocates call, call it a significant erosion of democratic rights for local communities. Yeah. Michael Buxton, a professor of planning at RMIT University, says the move will hand over substantial portions of the city to the development industry to be redeveloped without any local or community input. Buxton said data shows delays are not due to councils, but rather developers who are holding off um, on bigger projects due to construction costs. Sorry, I was, and I'm not laughing at the thing. No, no, it's the absurdity yeah. of the situation. Yeah. Uh, in other news this week, the Adnimatna community have been devastated after culturally significant sand hills at a heritage site in the Flinders Ranges were destroyed. The sand hills were damaged by unauthorized earthworks during construction of a fence line on a national park boundary with Beltana Station. Kunanyu woman Re- Regina McKenzie said it is a totally heartbreaking to see the destruction of a crucial part of First Nations Adnimatna cultural heritage. The community says the Environment Department initially sought advice on whether a cultural assessment was required, but four days later, before consultations were completed, a private contractor began digging holes on the site. Wow. And finally, in news headlines, a report released this week shed light on the exacerbated impacts of the cost of living crisis on migrants and refugees who are trying to meet ends meet in both Australia and for loved ones overseas. The report by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute indicates that one in ten people surveyed went without meals in the past year because they didn't have enough money. The Victorian Bakhtar Community Organisation said it is overwhelmed by refugees asking for food packs with the number of people seeking help tripling in the past six months. Now these have been the news headlines for Thursday the 21st of September. You're listening to 3CR. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855am. It is 7.11 in the morning. Now, last week I caught up with Professor Katerina Tewa and Itintirungare Bantes to discuss the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banaban and the fight by Banabans for reparations and an end to extraction. This conversation occurs in the context of a recent push by Australian mining company Centrex, which has sought to conduct phosphate prospecting activities on the island under the greenwashing premise of rehabilitation. Katerina is an interdisciplinary scholar, artist, and award-winning teacher of Banaban, Ikiribas, and African-American heritage, born and raised in Fiji. 
She's a professor of Pacific Studies in the School of Culture, History, and Language, College of Asia and the Pacific at the ANU, and a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. Ray is of Banaban and Kiribati origins and was raised in and educated in Fiji. Ray's environment and social justice work are linked to Kiribati people's histories and the extent of environmental degradation caused by extensive mining. This week, you're going to hear the third segment of a three-part interview with Katerina and Ray, and you can listen back to last week's podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast to catch the first two parts of this conversation. And we'll also have a link to the petition started by the Bonabun community on Rambi Island, Fiji, which demands a defense of Bonabun rights and the prevention of any further on the mining, uh, for any further mining of the island in our show notes. So let's catch that third part now. Ray's been working with the people on the ground on all of these issues. Yeah. Yeah. And so far, uh, we've been able to kind of just back off uh, Centrix from the, you know, from the deal. Because, of course, uh, our people are tricking or maybe are getting Centrix to think that they've done their bits of consulting the people to get the, you know, the consent. The consent. Uh, so Centrix part, uh, Centrix had to come and respond to the media to stop everything until the proper consultation has taken place. And there's other elements of these uh, signed agreement, which uh, we are hopeful we will get, you know, more, more uh, details about the, the deal that was signed off on 15th August of 2023. Yeah. Mm. This yeah. is not the first time. Last year, I also had the same battle with the same people. Uh, and they were stopped uh, from uh, registering a exploration uh, company in Kiribati, uh, and that was facilitated by the previous administrator. After analyzing the, you know, the the agreement, uh, he came back uh, saying that everything that's in the everything that's in the the agreement has no rehabilitation you know they they labeled it as a rehabilitation project but it's all extraction uh and mining there wasn't any rehabilitation so they stopped it last year and uh you know when we had our new administrators of Banaban origins this this document has been revised and then resurfaced and is the one trying to to facilitate uh the Fiji and the Kiribati side of uh, registration to ensure that the work is done by Centrex. Yeah, it just seems totally disingenuous the way that Centrex have come into this and also decided who they're going to speak to uh, and how negotiations will be done in a way that is favorable uh, to the company rather than you know representative of the concerns of Bonobin landowners. And so, you know, it comes back to that sort of colonial divide and rule and. Uh, you know, jurisdictional kind of tactics that then all of a sudden magically leave the island available for further um, extraction by, you know, various foreign interests and this time Centrex. Um, and yeah, just, um, you know, appalling that the um, that this idea of prospecting, which I think we all know that prospecting is a first step um, rather than uh you know, just some innocent look around. Um, the the idea that that's being framed as rehabilitation, I mean, just echoes again uh, so many colonial mining processes that we've seen. You know, across this continent, across the Pacific, um, all over the place, where um, 
you know, extractive industries are happy to take and use land, use up the resources that they think um, that they want to get out of the land and then um, give poisoned land back to communities once they've done what they what they want with it, um, if it ever gets given back at all. And so, um, Ray, I think uh, it would be good to to close out on um, hearing about what uh, Bonobans have been campaigning for uh, in terms of some of the key demands that are recentering Bonobans self-determination and relationship to the island um, in this campaign to end mining and prospecting on Bonoba. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, the last three years we've been working with our communities in Rembi and also supporting the council during uh, the former the former administrator's time uh, on a voluntary capacity and. We've been looking at, uh, you know, reparations because there are so many countries who owe us a lot uh, to revitalize the island. And so this work has progressed. We had our first exhibition in Auckland, New Zealand early this year, uh, following that conversation to really put the Barnaban agenda back to the New Zealand uh, people. So uh, because, you know, much of our history was never documented, even in countries that uh, uh, benefited from our phosphate. We are nowhere in the curriculum, the education system. They don't teach their people uh, what they did uh, to, you know, to the Barnabans. So that was important for us to come back. That was building on the work Professor Katarina did on a project called Project Barnabas. Our one, uh, we came in with uh, some of our people from Rambi to actually have that human, uh, you know, connection through stories uh, coming right from the islands. So uh, it was a complementary project uh, what the professor had done. And uh, that was all part of that call for reparation. And we had a very good audience with the government of New Zealand through the Green Party. We had two MPs from the Green Party that attended and the conversation continues uh, to put this agenda of reparations first and foremost over anything else. Because there is no risk and harm in asking for reparation uh, because they owe us a lot. So that was the work that we are very committed to as uh, as of 2021. We are going back to New Zealand end of this year uh, to continue the discussions on what that preparation will look like. We also had, uh, Professor and I also had a time with uh, one of the Labour's MP in Australia. Karina Garland. Karina Garland. Same messaging, same messaging around reparation uh, because Australia also has that responsibility. Last week we had a conversation with one of the diplomats from the Climate change, I think. Mm, yeah. uh, Matthew Fox, mm. and we asked them the. We questions, asked him the question from DFAT, uh, yeah. from DFAT, but sadly they didn't have uh, the right, no answer. No answer. <laughs> uh, just to acknowledge some of those uh, darkest Australian history, uh, because they're so committed in uh, you know stepping up uh, to the indigenous issues on this land in Australia, but yet they've not really you know they always keep the Barnaban, uh, they always ignore the Barnaban. Uh, area of, uh, you know, uh, what they actually contributed to the extraction and uh, the displacement, displacement mm. the dispossession and all other issues. And yet this Australian company is resurfacing, our, our Australian registered company, and we've been making noise on, you know, uh, the Australian media, but no one is taking, you know, a stand to say like, hey, what's happening? These are the same people that extracted mm. Barnabin are coming back. Uh, you know, so we we are working on the, you know reparations. We are mm. asking for reparations. Then we had a petition that we circulated and translated in the Tete and Kiribati. Barnabans lost their Barnaban language because of the migration and 
the histories around, you know, Christianity, translation of the Bibles. So we're using the data and Kiribati, and we translated all this petition uh, demanding the re revocation, what did you say? Of the agreement. The announcement yeah. of the agreement, because he has signed the agreement blindly. We want that revoked. And the second ask uh, was, you know, for administrator to be removed from office uh, because he has done something that's really uh, sensitive uh, and not following all the due diligence uh, because alone he's not the only landowner on Barnaba to be doing all of that, uh, you know, mm. uh, for everyone uh, because everyone are entitled and deserve to know uh, what this contract looks like. And then also uh, there was a good uh, goodwill payment that was part of the deal. We're still asking where's the goodwill payment and who, who, who received, received it. Yeah. Yeah. And the last one, uh, the last ask that we had was the reinstatement of the Rampy Council of Leaders. And normally we would have uh, uh, nine elected uh, members of the Rampy Council of Leaders, which provides a very safer democracy for us uh, because we elect these people from the community and it's a democratic, uh, you know, process where you put in people and you can take them to task and you get to hear more about what's happening with our development because they're there and they're in our communities as well. With what we have right now, he's a very silver-based, uh, city-based uh, administrator, uh, just providing oversight uh, support for the island and doing things with the silver people, our people in Suva. Uh, secrecy, a lot of secrecy and so much that we don't know about. And uh, that's that's been, you know, yeah, so I thought I just started with reparation because that has been the work, but not other things that we, you know, that's coming up. We don't support mining mm. and we're very clear with our stand. Yeah. yeah. Um, no more mining is probably the, the the main goal. You know, we don't want this island mined any further. And in fact, we want it, we do want it restored. We think that is very possible. It is possible to ecologically um, and culturally restore the island and maybe safeguard it as a source of culture and heritage and you know ancestral connections uh, for future generations of Banabans, but also maybe you know as a, a site for the world <laughs> to learn about you know the impacts of extraction and of phosphate mining and and of global agriculture, which contributes to climate change. All of these things create climate change; they're not separate from climate change. So you know that's probably a long-term goal out of that as well no more mining and let's regrow and restore the island yeah and you know no surprise at all that uh dfat officials have been uh, afraid to have a discussion with the r word reparations in it because uh you know that implies a level of uh complicity but also a level of ceding power and resources back to people that I'm sure they're not comfortable with acknowledging, you know, it's hard enough to get them to do it here, let alone a place that uh, Australia, as as Ray, you've mentioned, and these other countries have actively obscured from the national imaginary as a place that we have a complicity uh, to in terms of the extractive industries. Now, um, I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but is there anything else that either of you would like to add before we wrap up? No, I think just thanking you for your time. Uh you know, and having this conversation. Yes, we really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, share these stories. And we know there's a lot going on. There's many different issues, you know, there's there's so much tragedy and so much loss um, throughout the world. And, you know, people are imagining future 
loss and damage and everything else. And I guess, you know, we firmly believe that you, you can only change how you act and change your behavior by learning more about the past and actually dealing with the past and dealing with history. You know, that is, that is the best way forward actually is that people do have to face these kinds of issues where, you know, they have done something wrong and they have to deal with it. You can't run away from it. So <laughs> to, to understand and to figure out what to do in the future, you have to deal with your, with your past and that's on every front. So yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate um, your time in chatting with us. And that was Professor Katerina Tewa and Itintirongare Bantes, who joined me last week to discuss the colonial history of phosphate mining on Banaban and the fight by Banabans for uh, reparations and an end to extraction. And this conversation, again, occurred in the context of a recent push by mining company Centrex, an Australian mining company which has sought to conduct phosphate prospecting activities on the island of Banaba under the greenwashing premise of rehabilitation. Now, this week, you heard that third part of a three-part interview with Katerina and Ray. You can listen back to last week's podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast to catch the first two parts of the conversation. Now we'll have a link to the petition started by the Bonabun community on Rambi Island, Fiji, which demands a defense of Bonabun rights and the prevention of any further mining of the island in our show notes. But you can also find it now on change.org by searching stop, stop, Centrex Mining. That's that is C E N T R E X. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. From a private life so public as the tabloids caught your tears being photographed How sad. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm on 3CR. And again, we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.27 in the morning. And we are now going to be joined by Ellie from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism to talk about an upcoming protest event that CARF is holding to drive the Nazis out of so-called Melbourne. So a few weeks ago, we had fellow CARF member Jasmine on to discuss this upcoming rally. But since then, we've seen some successful anti-fascist resistance to attempted neo-Nazi intimidation of a fundraiser event that was held last Friday at Cafe Gummo in Thornbury. So today, Ellie's going to continue the discussion about the importance of a broad-based anti-fascist resistance. Let us know about the speak-out held this past Tuesday at Gummo and remind listeners about details of the protests coming up this Saturday, the 23rd of September. Good morning, Ellie. Thanks so much for joining us. That's okay. Um, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I thought that we could begin by recapping the anti-fascist fundraiser event held at Cafe Gummo in Thornbury last Friday, the 15th of September, because no doubt some folks will have unfortunately caught some of the terrible news coverage of what went down when a group of neo-Nazis rocked up. So first of all, could you tell us a bit about what the aim of that fundraiser event was? Um, Yeah, so it was a completely peaceful anti-fascist fundraiser for the White Rose Society. They basically do research into fascist groups um, and, like, who the members are. So it's, like, very standard uh, to have an event like this at Cafe Gummo, just basically people enjoying um, music and food. Yeah, absolutely. And I know they were also raising funds for, for Black People's Union. And this is kind of a a reminder as well of how, you know, anti-fascist resistance and anti-colonial solidarity really go hand in hand there. Um, and, um, of course, there, um, there was some pretty terrible uh, media coverage. I saw uh, Channel 7 really doing the both sidesing of there. Did you want to comment on any of that before we move on to, um, you know, the diversity of tactics question? Yeah, I mean, I think that it just sort of goes to show that we can't rely on the mainstream media to, you know, take the side of anti-fascists. Um, in most situations, like he said, they really will try and pose it as both sides were violent or both sides were sort of um, negatively involved. When, as you said, that's really not the case. Yeah, I mean, it is, um, it's, it was, you know, quite stark in, in that, um, in that portrayal in, in, especially the Channel 7 TV news coverage that I was able to catch where uh, it very much said that it was like a clash between uh, the far left and the far right, which we know is a false equivocation. Um, But coming back to what actually sort of happened, uh, Sharp or Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice engaged in some pretty excellent boots on the ground community defense and solidarity. And I know that Tom Tanaki did a great video recap of this for listeners who are interested. But I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of a diversity of tactics from White Rose Society's research into, um, you know, fascist groups and sharing that with uh, both the community and media outlets to Carf's rallies and resisting and pushing back the fash. Yeah, I think diversity is, you know, it covers more bases, is able to get more people involved. Um, but I think fundamentally, like, solidarity is really key to our strengths. Um yeah, people contribute in different ways, but all of these ways are strongest when we're unified and when we're in our numbers. So, like, I personally think we really have to make space for everyone to join this movement. Um, we're trying to make it something mass, because mm-hmm. a mass movement can really crush the right um, and bring anti-fascist politics into the mainstream. Yeah, and I guess by having people play these different roles as well towards the broader goal of crushing fascism, um, it allows people to to play to their strengths, whether that is in in the case of White Rose Society's research um, or in um, the case of folks who, you know, just have an everyday grassroots opposition to fascism and show up en masse, um, you know, to, to support CARF's work and to um, to fight back. So, you were involved as well in coordinating an anti-fascist speak-out outside Cafe Gummo this past Tuesday. So can you tell us a bit about what that was about and the significance of staking a claim to that space? 
Yeah, well, like I sort of touched on, like Cafe Gummo um, and more generally just the inner north, they're quite like left-wing centres of the city. And so the fact that the Nazis had been able to attack this anti-fascist, like peaceful event, um, and they were pretty unsuccessful thanks to the really staunch comrades who were there that night. But the fact that they did, it just still sends this message um, that we felt was really important to respond to. So we wanted to show solidarity with the people who were there that night and just reclaim the space as like a proud left-wing anti-fascist space and again like invite others into it who maybe like live in the area and saw what happened um, and may have been appalled or even like intimidated by it. Yeah so um, what did you have organized for that? Well like what was the event? Yeah. Yeah, so basically we set up like a couple of really big banners for people to join us in painting that had like uh, anti-Nazi, anti-fascist slogans. And then we had a few people um, give speeches about the importance of anti-fascist organizing. Um, And yeah, overall, it was like a really nice night. We got about 100 people out. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really beautiful. And I think... um it it is it is interesting reflecting back on various news coverage of the event. There is um, a tendency to, I guess, uh, pit quote unquote the local community against, um, you know, even anti-fascist resistance, and to say, you know, that people were are, are appalled by any kind of activities that are, I guess, outside of the the norm of local business activities. Um, but I'm I'm wondering how this kind of event, you know, these kinds of positive, peaceful events that are open to the community, um, that have an explicit message of anti-fascist resistance and building broad-based solidarity actually help build links even when mainstream media outlets try and present um, community and uh, anti-fascist organizers as divided or um, as in opposition to one another. Yeah, well, I think that the the more events, the more sort of public spaces there are for people to connect with the movement, um, the better, the more they're going to trust and support and also have the opportunity to get involved. Like, we've had um, a flood of messages um, since we held the speak out of people all across the city, actually, mm-hmm. saying how much they enjoyed seeing this, um, how much they would love to support on the actual night. Like, we had so many passerbys, um, like, give their support or solidarity. Yeah, I, I think that's really lovely as well, just, like, being uh, a space for people to kind of connect with anti-fascist resistance, even if it's something that they wouldn't normally, um, you know, think that they would participate in, but making that... Um, you know, accessible to to folks that wouldn't otherwise be reached through, you know, normal organizing channels or social media messaging, that kind of thing. Um, Now, we spoke with Jasmine a couple of weeks ago about the the CARF rally that's upcoming this Saturday, the 23rd. But can you remind us about the main aims and the key details of what's planned for the weekend? Yeah, so we're going to be meeting at 2 p.m. this Saturday outside of Sunshine IGA. And we're going to then peacefully march on the Nazi gym. So it's going to be a really important, staunch show of anti-fascist and left-wing solidarity. 
Our message is really clear. No Nazis here or anywhere. We think these Nazi scum are a concern for everybody. And they've been running around and intimidating or trying to for too long. Like, Sunshine locals have made it really clear that this, like, disgusting, racist, sexist, anti-human politics is not welcome in their community. Um, And you know, any community in Melbourne would have that sort of response. So we're going to push them out. Yeah, and I think it having this kind of proactive event, I think, is, is so vital as well, again, for, you know, bringing more people in, um, allowing more people to kind of see the public presence of resistance to fascism in this city. And, um, you know, as I'd spoken with Jasmine about trying to get the word out about this event um, early, I understand was part of CARF trying to bring as many people in as possible to get involved. Um, So maybe finally, could you tell us a little bit more about how people can support the work of White Rose Society and Black People's Union as well as CARF and what it means to you to work in solidarity across movements for anti-fascist resistance? Yeah, I think getting involved in activism is the most important thing. We need people showing up and making it clear what side they're on. Like, we all have the right ideas, or at least, you know, the majority of us do. Um, But when the far right and the right are getting more and more active and confident every day, um, the right ideas just isn't enough. We have to get physical numbers out on our side and we have to make it really clear that the left is strong and we're going to fight like not just the attacks from the right but also for a standard of living that's higher than what's on the table right now Mm. i think people deserve so much more than what capitalism is currently offering Mm -hmm. um and groups like black people's union white rose society cast like that is a huge part of our argument as well. It's not just about defending, but it's about demanding, you know, an end to systemic racism, black deaths in custody, um, for, you know, gay, trans rights, for women's rights and workers' rights. So, yeah, I would just really implore people to support all of these groups on the ground wherever you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, having having so many different groups come together um to stand in solidarity against fascism and to say hey we are you know we're we're working together against this we collectively resist this i think probably also um you know i would to hazard a guess that it uh, undermines the ability um, of mainstream media outlets to misrepresent uh, what people are talking about or to to try and silo off anti-fascist resistance from, uh, you know, broader, I guess, quote-unquote, progressive ideals. Mm. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add before we ra- wrap up? Um, I think that pretty much covers everything I would want to say. But, yeah, just really implore people to come out at 2 p.m. this Saturday, Sunshine IGA. Um, Like I said, it will be a peaceful event, and we really need numbers to make the point um, that we're going to make. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Ellie, for joining us this morning. Really appreciate you making the time and wishing you all the best for Saturday. Thanks so much. 
And that was Ellie from Campaign Against Racism and Fascism who joined us to talk about a protest that's coming up this Saturday, the 23rd of September, held by CARF uh, to drive the Nazis out of so-called Melbourne. And as Ellie said, that's going to be meeting at Sunshine West IGA at 2 p.m. this Saturday. So a few weeks ago, we had fellow CARF member Jasmine on to discuss this upcoming rally. But since then, we have seen some anti-fascist resistance successfully standing up to neo-Nazi intimidation of a fundraiser event that occurred last Friday at Cafe Gamo in Thornbury. So today, Ellie and I spoke about the importance of broad-based anti-fascist resistance, and we spoke a little bit about the speak-out that was organized this past Tuesday at Gamo, and then reminded listeners about the details of the protest this Saturday. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist growth thing Even with racist views They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Salam be Hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. It is currently 7.42 and we are now joined by Marie McCabe, who AM, who is a CEO of Dementia Australia and a member of the organisation's board. A recognised leader in the health and aged care sector, Marie brings more than 20 years' experience across health, mental health and aged care sectors. She joins us today for Dementia Action Week 2023, which is from 18 to 24th of September, which include World's Alzheimer's Day on Thursday 21st, to talk about stigma, discrimination and the lack of awareness about dementia. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Marie. Thank you, Anil. Well, yeah, I thought we could start off with Dementia Action Week because it is from the 18th and 24th of September, And despite increasing awareness, there seems to be this real fear and lack of understanding about the condition, which really leads to real-world impacts on people who are living with dementia. So maybe could you tell us a little bit more about what dementia is and what do you you wish people knew about it? Right. 
So um, Dementia Action Week is the perfect week for us to raise awareness, to be able to dispel some of the myths and encourage communities to be more dementia-friendly. And dementia is a disease of the brain. It is the second leading cause of death in Australia after heart disease and the leading cause of death of women. There are over 100 different types of dementia and depending on the type of dementia will depend on the symptoms that the person has because it, different dementias impact different areas of the brain. Now, one of the things, um, Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia and about 60% of people living with dementia have Alzheimer's disease. Now, that's characterised often by short-term memory loss, but that may not be a feature of other forms of dementia. It may be what people notice is the changing mood, changing personality, changing behaviour where the person starts doing things that are out of character. So they're the sorts of things that people might see or notice or experience with some of the forms of dementia. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, to be honest, I think I was unaware of all the nuances of dementia. I thought, um, yeah, maybe naively that it was, you know, one condition that presents, you know, pretty similarly, but understanding that there's so many variances and how it presents and it, the impact that it also has on women, I think that's a really important point. So thank you for letting us know. I'm sure I, I didn't know that. And I think a lot of our listeners might not know either. And, and if you, what you shared about you thought you were naive, not at all. Many people had similar thinking and that's why we're so grateful for opportunities such as sharing with you today so that we can get out the messages, dispel the myths and encourage more communities to become dementia-friendly so that we can have people living at home longer and living the life they love with the people they love. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful, living the life they love with the people that they love. Um and I think a, a large por like portion of what our conversation today is about stigma and people's misconceptions or, yeah, lack of awareness of what it is. Um, yeah. And I know the survey results that um, you've recently done are showing that 32% of Australians found living with dementia – oh, sorry – 32% of Australians found people who are living with dementia frightening, which is an increase from 23% a decade ago. Um, and also other research shows that showing um, showing that 80% of people, of those who are, have a loved one living with dementia, felt that people in like shops, cafes, restaurants, treated people with dementia differently. Firstly, okay. I think I really want to ask what discrimination against someone with dementia looks like every day. Well, I just want to say one of the things in there's about that stat yeah. is that dementia is largely an invisible disability and often what people can't see, they don't understand and what they don't understand, they often avoid. And that's the experience of many people living with dementia and that's discrimination. So that's what discrimination can look like. And I think people don't know what to do. They don't know what to say, so they're too scared to do anything. So they do nothing and they avoid the situation, which, of course, is not helpful for people. But the other thing that people with the living experience of dementia share with us is that dementia discrimination can look like when they go to see their health professional, the health professional talks to the carer instead of the person living with dementia. It can look like family members or friends excluding them from social events. 
it can look like being impatient with people if they need a little bit more time to be able to communicate what it is that they need or want. Uh, it can look like many things. And one of our clients that lives in New South Wales, I met up with him a few weeks ago, and he has a form of dementia where his spatial awareness is affected, so his depth perception is not as good as it used to be. And he now uses a white cane when he's out. And he said that people are so helpful. They come up to him, they offer to help. He said that when he doesn't have the white stick, that people are really impatient. Yep. And it really does drive home to me that theory that once people understand, they are willing to help, they want to make a difference. So I just, you know, I hope those examples are, um, are helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a lot, it intersects with a lot of different um, things that we talk about on 3CR, like disability and housing um, and just treating all like people who have English as a second language. A lot of it comes down to just patience and understanding and really trying to give it a, give it a go. Um, yeah. And I think I'm also curious about why is this discrimination and stigma kind of occurring? Because you know, we know that it comes from social messaging, from media influences, but from your understanding um, at Dementia Australia, why do you think that, you know, this stigma keeps happening? Look, I do think it's because people don't know what to do. They don't understand. Yeah. They're fearful of saying something that may actually offend the person or upset them. And I think that that's the issue. And what people often think, one of the myths about dementia that we want to dispel is that the person... Once they get dementia, they can't do or um, they can't do anything. That is not the case. Seventy percent of people living with dementia live in the community, and many live very well with the right support. And if the person is still there, they are still the same person. They may need a little bit more time. They may need a little bit more support, but they still are the same person, and they crave to be included and to be. Um, respected and that we be sensitive and we need to meet them where they're at. They can't meet us where we're at. We need to meet them where they're at. Yeah, 100%. I think meeting someone where they're at applies to you know, when a loved one is working, like supporting someone living with dementia as well um, and in so many other facets of our, um, our life and our work is just meeting people where they're at. And I know we've spoken about the person who is living with dementia and kind of what they might be going through. But I also want to turn the focus on loved ones because I know that loved ones may also feel maybe frustrated or overwhelmed or unsure. So when they're, you know, with someone in their family who is living with dementia, what are some ways loved ones and the community can provide really like welcoming and safe spaces while also looking after themselves? Great question, Inez. And one of the things that we know is that people living, carers of people living with dementia from the research have worse health outcomes than carers caring for people with other disabilities. And I just want to say that it is so important that carers are supporters. Yep. Um, a daily phone call please and people say look I don't know what to say just say I'm thinking of you I wanted to call and check in that makes such a difference for carers and for people living with dementia making sure that people 
get out a bit, that they have some social time with friends, that they've got some respite, and the carer needs that, the person living with dementia needs that. We need time apart from each other at times. So that's a really important thing. And communities to make sure that there's spaces, there's, you know, good outdoor seating, there's toilets accessible, public toilets, that people understand in organisations and businesses the challenge that dementia can present and how best to support somebody living with dementia. They're really important things. Local councils are such a fabulous resource and we're encouraging all local councils to include dementia as part of their accessibility plans. So there is so much signage is really important. And quiet spaces, that's something that people living with dementia can struggle with is being overstimulated by lots of noise. So having some quiet areas is such an important thing. Yeah, definitely. I think having like that surrounding and also implementing what what we can change in like disability action plans or with councils and organizations I think is really important. I think what I'm also curious about is like if you are someone who is supporting someone living with dementia and you're maybe not sure what kind of activities to take them to, do you have any examples of what might be appropriate? Like would a walk be or sitting in a park or yeah, what do you think about that? I think they're both great ideas and, and there's, I think the best activities for people living with dementia are the ones they love. So it might be they love going to the movies, it might be they love music and, you know, being at a concert and it will depend on the stage of dementia that they're at. Yep. But sitting and reading with somebody, listening to music together, there's the sorts of things that make a difference to people and sometimes it's just the fact that you're there. And they don't, you know, often people just stick with their loved one and they might listen to a piece of music that they enjoy. They might look at photographs together. It may be something that, you know, really prompts their memory and gives them the experiences from the really happy times in their lives. So do whatever makes people happy and what they love. Yeah, I think that's so special and so lovely to remember that, like, just spending time and even going through memories and really thinking about what the person likes because as you said at the start of the interview every the way it presents is completely different every individual is different what they're going to like is going to be different too Um, but I think from what I'm hearing about what you're saying it's just about showing up being patient and being considerate Absolutely. And if people have any queries, please call our National Dementia Helpline on 1800 100 500. And our team of experts are there seven days a week, 24 hours a day for whatever query you have, for whatever information you need or whatever support you need. Yeah, that's amazing. We will definitely put that in there. Um, and lastly, when it comes to like organisations, businesses, councils and groups. Um, You've spoken about some of this earlier, but what are some ways that you have seen that are like practical, really effective solutions to make communities more dementia friendly? We've seen a fabulous library and they and libraries have quite spaces, but their signage is dementia friendly. They make sure that the colour in there is really contrasting colour so the chairs stand out from the floor Mm -hmm. to avoid any falls. Make sure staff there are aware of 
how to support somebody living with dementia. And look, fundamentally, Inez, it's been kind, it's been considerate and been thoughtful. And uh, so the other spaces, we've had art galleries that have been dementia-friendly, that are dementia-friendly, and that have days specifically for people living with dementia, which is fantastic because it means they're not surrounded by crowds. They can enjoy the art and take their time, and that's really lovely. So there's lots of things that we can do, and finally, just such a fabulous month. It's an easy one to, you know, to accommodate, and we're very keen that organisations go to our website. We've got a toolkit there for people, dementia.org.au forward slash Dementia Action Week. Amazing. Thank you so much, Marie. This has been such an insightful and important conversation and especially for Dementia Action Week. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show, letting everybody know more about dementia, what it looks like and how we can also try to mitigate some of the stigma and create so safer welcoming spaces and relationships. Thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous, Inez. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you so much, Marie. Hope you have a lovely morning. Bye. Thank you. Bye now. And that was Marie McCabb AM, who is a CEO of Dementia Australia and a member of the organisation's board. A recognised leader in health and aged care sector, Marie brings more than 20 years' experience across health, mental health and aged care sectors. She joins us today for Dementia Action Week 2023 from 18th to 24th of September to talk about stigma, discrimination and the lack of awareness of dementia. And she also stated that you can always call the National Dementia Helpline on 1-800-100-500. That's 1-800-100-500. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and it's currently 756 Tune in to Rainbows Don't Fade With Age on Radio 3CR fortnightly on Mondays at 2pm. Rainbows Don't Fade With Age, Melbourne's only show dedicated to all things LGBTI, ageing and aged care. With stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being and visibility of older LGBTI people. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. Wow carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldem Chogo Edwards, for Balamwa, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing Okay, and we're back. 
So our next guest um, is Xavier Dupree, who is the um, education officer from the National Union of Students. And um, we've got him in to talk about the, I guess, I, I guess after, especially after yesterday's announcement, I think this is a really good time to have a conversation about housing policy and what the current federal government uh, housing policy, how that affects students and how the, the, the backflip by the Greens affects, you know, the, your, your ability to campaign. So welcome, Xavier. How are you going? Thanks so much, Spike. Great no to worries. be here. Cool, man. So how does it, what, what, what's it like for students you know, what's the housing situation like for students? Yeah, so the last year's seen the biggest rental increase over a year ever. Um, in some cases, students are seeing uh, rental increases of 30, 40, 50%, where landlords are able to use the threat of eviction to drive up rents to levels that are completely unaffordable. Um, there's very few rights for renters. Um, and they're absolutely not getting enough um, support. There was a study done by Anglicare that found if you're on JobSeeker, in all of Australia, there were just four rental listings things that were affordable for you. And if you're on youth allowance, there were none. Um, and that's including, um, you know, rooms in share houses, things like that. Um, we're seeing that because of the rising rents, like, and the fact that groceries are up 8% or more, you know, people are having, students are having to skip meals. Um, uh, and this is at the same time as um, the government is handing billions and billions of dollars to um, the wealthy and to property, property investors. Yeah, like uh, in in, my, in a former life as a community health worker, we saw a lot of students, man, coming in, especially for health, like to see the nurse and the food security program. Um, yeah, there was a. It looked like the housing, well, accommodation, and that's and just general access to allied health is really difficult for people who are studying. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right to point to housing specifically. Um, like substantial amounts of university-owned student housing has been sold off to private. Uh, owners who charge um, through the roof, especially to international students um, who have nowhere else to go. Um, yeah, and we're seeing um, that's just putting even more pressure on, um, especially since the government has also been selling off um, uh, public housing like we're seeing at the moment. So I guess my next question, what I really want to ask you, so what would help students right now, like generally? And also, yeah, what was... And so what was your plan, your approach to uh, uh, um, your strategy in dealing with the, the current housing policy by the federal government? Yeah, so we at minimum need rent caps. Um, rent should not be able to be risen on the whim of landlords to levels that are completely unaffordable for people. Um, but we need more than that as well. Um, welfare needs to be raised above the poverty line to at least $88 a day um, and made available to all students, many of whom are currently excluded from that. Um, and at the same time, we know that while there are 170,000 people on the public housing waiting list, we know that um, there's uh, 130,000 um, properties left vacant, yeah. um, according to the latest statistics. So those should not be you know, used by investors um, for tax concessions like negative gearing. Yeah. They should be taken off them and used to house people um, in need of it. And I guess the final thing is that the government needs to be expanding the stock of public housing um, when, uh, unfortunately, instead what they're doing is um, reducing the uh, number of places available in um, public housing. For instance, the Waterloo Estate up in Sydney. Um, and uh, although the details are not all out, um, I think we should suspect that of what's happening to the public housing tower in Carlton as well. Yeah, and I guess you can just assume that there's been a uh, like a campaign uh, for the last 30 or, yeah, 
Sorry. I got I got a bit cool, sorry. Yeah, I, I guess generally just the lack of support and the talking down of public assets and public housing has been in the major newspapers, like especially commercial newspapers, there's not been a lot of support for public housing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's been, um, I think this argument put by the Labor government and by um, the um, mainstream media that the issue is that they're that the issue is supply that there just aren't enough physical homes. Um, I think the it's clear that that's um, uh, bullshit. Basically, yeah. Um, that what they've been doing is um, like you know handing more money to um, property developers when they what they need to be doing is expanding the stock of um, government. Uh, owned and operated housing um, to keep it affordable and directly controlling the um, price of... Yeah, basically con- controlling rent to keep it at affordable levels. How, how do you feel about the demo- like the so-called democratic process when, like, I guess the Greens change change their mind or do a backflip on a whim? Like, how does it make you feel about the, yeah, the so-called democratic process? Yeah, well, the Greens have pitched themselves as the party of renters um, and pointed out all of the many problems with Labor's um, Housing Australia Future Fund, for instance, that it does nothing for renters, um, that there's no guarantee, there was never any guarantee and still isn't that the money um, will be spent on genuine public housing. Um, but, uh, you know, while they were, you know, right to hold it up, um, hold up the policy and demand a rent freeze, they've unfortunately now um, completely backflipped on that um, and uh, left renters high and dry. Um, I think this is, um, uh, yeah, extremely unfortunate and disappointing. Um, and it's um, why, you know, the um, Get a Room campaign organised by National Union of Students has looked to mobilise people in the streets because we know that we can't rely on what happens in Parliament. So, yeah, tell us a bit more about the Get a Room yeah, absolutely. So Get a Room um, was a campaign that um, I started with um, others in the National Union of Students um, to point to um, and demand um, affordable housing for um, all students. We've been um, organising protests all throughout the year, for instance, uh, against the Reserve Bank of Australia, um, who have been um, crushing people under the right, uh, weight of rising mortgages. Um, also against uh, their, the, its new governor, Michelle Bullock, um, who has said that she wants um, to push up the rate of joblessness, um, of, of unemployment, um, at a time when people are doing it tougher than ever. Um, and um, we've been doing all this, mobilising students in the streets um, to um, demand real solutions to the housing crisis, like caps on rent that keep it at affordable levels, um, uh, affordable university-owned accommodation for students and um, public housing provided by the government, um, and to crack down on the people who are profiting from the crisis, like um, the big banks who've made record profits from rising mortgages, um, and the um, landlords and property investors um, who um, get away with letting houses fall into disrepair um, and uh, charge like ever-increasing uh, rents for their own profits. Wow, man, that's a compre- that was a great answer. Yeah, go, go. Yeah, Spike, I was, is it okay if I jump in with a a quick question or um, clarification, actually, because um, Xavier, you've been talking about affordability a lot. And I think um, that word can really be thrown around without much meaning attached to it, which then allows a lot of politicians to appeal to affordability when what they're talking about is, you know, vastly unaffordable for a lot of people. So could you just um, 
yeah, tell us a bit about what affordability might mean in this situation uh, so that we can kind of clarify it for listeners, um, especially when there's so much mixed messaging politically. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The government uses the term affordable housing often to mean housing that um, just has to be capped at 80% of the market rate. Well, newsflash for you, 80% (laughs) of the current market rate is last year's housing uh, rate, which is completely unaffordable by any meaningful standard. So I think, um, yeah, at a very, the absolute minimum, um, rents should not be rising right now. The rent freeze is a bare minimum of what the government should be doing. Um, really, like, um, if we want to look for um, making housing affordable, like the next kind of um, thing to look to would be in 2020, there was actually a dip in um, rental prices, going back to that and, and freezing it at um, something like that, um, you know, um, uh, would be... Um, definite progress. Um, but uh, I did I did some quick uh, sort of um, numbers looking at, you know, like 30% of um, your income is generally considered yeah. to be the threshold for whether you're in housing stress. If you're on youth allowance, it's something like $60 a week is 30% of your um, income. Um, so that is the, like, you know, Obviously, that's quite ambitious, um, uh, but that gives you a sense of just how appalling what the government is doing is and how, um, yeah, a freeze is kind of the bare minimum they should be doing. Is it, like, can I ask, in the union, like within the union, uh, do you guys discuss, like we talk about the housing crisis, but that's also like a, a commercial, a commercial, sort of, that helps commercial interests, the, 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 you know, the thing about scarcity, it sort of falls into the hands makes you know rents go up things cost more when there's less of them apparently and so do you talk about housing as a right separating that from the market because it's i think there needs to be other places where that's discussed like and i think it should be really important coming from the students yeah absolutely um so when the you know people will have like the way the mainstream media is talking about it is that um, the reason rents are so high is because um, the vacancy rate is so low. Um, part of the reason this is um, like a kind of manipulative, to be honest, is that the vacancy rate is like what's on the market. Um, yeah. It immediately excludes anything that is kept off the market um, as um, tax concessions by investors um, to yeah who can make uh, more money through um, the fact that house prices are rising. Um, you know they buy it, leave it empty, sell it, um, make more money um, through negative gearing. Um, they can let houses sit empty yeah. um, and um, claim those to um, like reduce their tax. Yeah. Um, and then finally, I think even if there genuinely were not enough physical houses, I think you're absolutely right. We should reject the idea um, that people should be able to make money off yeah. um, what is a, a fundamental human right. There's no reason um, that um, like the government couldn't pass legislation um, limiting the amount that can be charged in um, in rent. And so, like, do you, are you aware of the numbers of, for example, like students that are in public? Like, will this the knocking down? I was just, I guess you you didn't know, so it's so it's a really full on question for me to ask. But how many students would be in public housing? Like the, yesterday's announcement would have affected. I don't have the exact figures on that. My general understanding of the situation is that um, the housing, public housing, has gone from something that was used to be accessible to low, a broader range of low-income and working-class households um, that was there as a, a safety net um, 
um, that like both Labor and Liberal governments over successive decades have undermined, allowed to fall into disrepair and attacked so that it's only the, the very, very most vulnerable um, who um, turn to, uh, yeah, who uh, like access public housing, which also just makes it even more of a crime that the amount, the stock is being reduced. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think, um, yeah, we should see like the, um, what is very likely a reduction in the number of um, public housing spaces available in Carlton um, as being part of a broader project of um, making housing more privatised, um, less affordable, um, and which also obviously impacts students. You know, if there were public housing um, as, a, as a safety net um, that was uh, much more accessible, it would actually bring down rents and house prices um, because people would have... Um, it wouldn't be monopolised by private landlords so much, um, which would, uh, yeah, I think help out um, like students as well. Well, I guess it'd be great to have students at the table to be able to put, if you know, like if the public had, had input into housing policy and students, like genuine, um, um, yeah, substantive input into the way housing policy, where we could argue these um, points that housing is a right and not a privilege, yeah, I guess it really indicates how much of a closed shop um, the housing thing is with federal government. Mate, is there anything that you want to promote? Any upcoming stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So um, people should definitely um, follow um, get the Get a Room campaign on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Fix the Rent- Rental Crisis. And people should also follow the National Union of Students and at NUS Education. Um, the other thing that I would uh, just like to plug for people in Melbourne is that people like uh, like people would know that um, the Liberals are trying to scapegoat migrants as the cause of the housing crisis. Thanks. Um, yeah, yeah. Please talk about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. Well. Well, uh, yeah, people would have seen that, um, like, Dutton gave an absolutely, like, um, revolting racist speech um, in Parliament um, trying to say, well, we're um, at, like, the highest um, rate of um, housing unaffordability, there's a high rate of migration, trying to draw a connection between those two things. This is absolute racist garbage. Um, The people who are um, causing and profiting from the housing crisis are the banks that have made record profits, um, the property investors um, that are getting billions of dollars in tax concessions, um, and the Labor government that are handing more money to them. Um, Yeah, I think we need to stand against racism as well as um, standing against that, which is why people should come along to the um, protest this Saturday, 2pm, at IGA Sunshine West to stand against um, a Nazi group um, who um, have also been mobilising around the same uh, kind of anti-migrant rhetoric as Peter Dutton. All right, mate, great point. Thanks for coming on today. You've been awesome, Xavier. You have a good one, and yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Spike and Priya. No worries. The state government has sold 578 hectares of public land to private developers. They're building private public partnership model housing over public housing land, and it's just not on. Housing is just massively expensive. It's never been effective in this country to rely on the market to provide decent housing for people. Rent has risen by 21%. That's median rent across the country as of January this year. As the rents keep rising, so must we. And we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few. It will only be victorious by the many. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.
And we're back and we just heard an interview with Xavier Dupree, the education officer from the National Union of Students, who talked about uh, the, we talked about federal government housing policy and the backflip by the Greens in supporting a rent cap um, after extracting, uh, well, some money from the ALP. Uh, our next story is, um, yeah, this week we also had a, uh, the opportunity to speak to Izzy Brown and just to congratulate her and, and sorry, the Collingwood community on the launch of their latest grassroots community project, um, the Resident Frequency Recording Studio. And yeah, so let's listen to our conversation with Izzy. Well, work, welcome to Thursday Breakfast at 3CR. And um, I just want to welcome Izzy Brown to the, our, um, our show. And, and Izzy, I just wanted to congratulate you on the launch of the Residency Frequency Studio last Sunday. How did it go? Oh, it was really great. Yeah, an all-star local cast showed up um, and it went to late into the night. Yeah, and it was, it was a really kind of heartwarming, kind of cool little gathering of you know, a whole of the crew that have been involved in the studio and supporting it and it just yeah, your general Collingwood local, local legends doing their thing. So tell us a bit about what happens at the studio. So this has been a youth kind of created and directed creation. My son, Basie Brown, he's 19, and his friend Ben and some of their other friends um, have yeah, built this studio from scratch. Um, it's got uh, a band rehearsal room, a mixing room, and a vocal booth. And they just built it out of the wood that was in the underground car park that was old Strawberry Studios. So yeah. we got evicted from the Collingwood Underground um, yeah, there's a whole lot of materials down there, and so we kind of upcycled um, all that stuff. It's even got the original Strawberry Studios door, um, but it's taken on a whole new, whole new realm up there next to the Collingwood Neighbourhood House. It's in the men's shed, um, which wasn't getting used for much. Uh, we're sharing the space with Free Not Bombs, and so now, yeah, Free Not Bombs recording studio extravaganza. So how long did it take you to get this together? Like, was it something that you came up with or something that just came up organically? It came up pretty organically. Like, the space really wasn't being used and, you know, the, the guys were kind of looking for something to do and they were trying to get into kind of the idea of, like, you know, writing raps and music production and stuff. So we needed a safe space where we could do that. And, yeah, and thanks to Collingwood's um, they would have crews that are really cruising, always up for new ideas. They, yeah, welcome the idea. And it's just kind of organically evolved um, with whoever's been around. And, um, and yeah, they've, they've helped us get a little bit of funding for some um, equipment. And, um, yeah, the rest of the stuff was kind of found and upcycled and just kind of donated and put together. So it's a, it's a very DIY community endeavour. And... Um, and yeah, it's been been a really beautiful process, and especially um, getting a lot of kind of younger people from the estate, yeah, busy creating stuff and you know, learning new skills as they go along. It it sounds it sounds really beautiful, and it sounds like such a great thing. Um, I was reading a bit of a blurb on some social media, and it said something um, about like recording studio, uh, sorry, recording residents and the friends of the Collingwood Housing Estate. So, can you tell us, like, who who's it? Uh, what are there, are there any other programs that you've been running from the Collingwood Housing Estate, and how important are, are grassroots um, creating? 
Okay, creating um, safe spaces for young people, for anyone, basically. How, how important is that? Well, I think, I think it's really important, especially on a housing estate like Collingwood, where it's very high density. And, you know, there is like a, you know, a plethora of social issues that you get anywhere where there is, you know, um, people suffering from different, you know, mental health and um, traumas and other, other kind of related stuff. So you've got a high-density kind of population of people going through a lot of stuff. And, you know, with, with programs at the you know, Collingwood Neighbourhood House where, you know, it, you get a real, you know, kind of intersection of people. You know, there's the African women doing food and the Vietnamese ladies doing Tai Chi and then the teenagers in there building a recording studio. You know, it's like this really kind of um, multicultural, kind of multifaceted community where we all kind of coexist together and yeah, create all, all, all kinds of stuff and all of that is coming out of the neighbourhood house there and I guess it's just created a space where you can kind of be a bit autonomous and do your own thing and um, also come together with other people from a variety of different kind of backgrounds and, and, and lives and stuff to, to collaborate so you know it's, it's cool and, and it is organic and it is very grassroots and, and that's what's really beautiful about it. So how how much actual planning, like for people that might be listening and might be thinking shit, I'd like to do, so, you know I want to do something similar on my estate or in my neighbourhood. Did you meet regularly with people? Was it was it just emails or was it just um, word of mouth? Like was it how organised? Um, I'd say it was very word of mouth really yeah. like We'd often go to events at the neighbourhood house, whether it be the, you know, the mentored breakfast or the Vietnamese lunch and just just hang out with people and, like, other residents talked about, you know, wanting to do maybe a podcast with, like, stories, you know, stories from the residents. Um, you know, Richie was always jamming with people and making music and, like, having little open mic nights. And it just was, like, a natural progression. There wasn't really any organising meetings per se, like we attended like the CHIAC meeting which is the artists on the estate kind of meeting with Department of Housing once or twice. Yeah. But apart from that, no, it was just, yeah, real word of mouth, real like, you know, turn up, do something if you want to um, kind of vibe and yeah, I think that that way yeah, it wasn't really like a structured plan per se, it was just like a, an, an evolving autonomous kind of <laughs> entity. Okay. Yeah, it's cool. That sounds, it sounds really cool. So can you give us like, as it, as, is there anyone doing any, like a, a, any particular project right now in the studio? So, yeah, we literally only just launched on Sunday. We still need a few more bits of gear, like, um, like working headphones would be good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But we have got, we've got like, you know, a good, good microphone and sound card and computer and stuff. So um, if we can record vocals and do all that kind of thing, we probably need a bit more gear to start recording bands, like maybe a, like a bigger mix and that kind of stuff. So kind of because a lot of the gear we have is kind of found or donated, you know, we're just still working out what's working and what's not and what we need. And you can only really do that through kind of trial and error and experimentation. Yeah. Um, but... um. But yeah, so the plan is, you know, there's a community choir, um, and we've also been doing some stuff with vocal, like vocal boogie, the community choir, and Jody, 
Jodie Hugh also is on um, 3CR quite often, I think. Okay. She's got her own show on there, Jodie, Jodie Beaton. Oh, I, think, I think I've heard of Jodie, yeah. Yeah, so she's been um, doing a bit of singing. Um, I've been working on some stuff with Francis Evans, with Rotary Hose. Um, there's, a, there's a whole kind of cluster of, like, you know, kids that have been, you know, freestyling and rapping and emceeing and making and producing their own beats and that kind of stuff. So we just want to make a space where people, like anyone from the community, can feel comfortable to come in and have a chat and go through a bit of an induction on how to work the gear and, yeah, and start making stuff, you know? Do, do you think there are enough, um, like, is, it's free, obviously, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So what, do you think there are enough free sort of grassroots sort of creative spaces sort of around town? I think you can never have enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> you can never have enough kind of opportunities for people um, and people being, you know, that's in the people's local area and people that can, you know, places that where, you know, especially young people can kind of have autonomy and take ownership over. Like I think those kind of spaces are definitely lacking. Like, there's a heap of recording studios in Melbourne, but often they're not accessible because, yeah, they do cost a lot of money or you've got to know someone that knows someone or, you know, that kind of thing. That's, a, that's such a great point, Izzy. Like, I think I think pointing out, yeah, how how many barriers there are to being able to use, like, a commercial space. Yeah, go on. Sorry for interrupting you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I am hoping, you know, because I guess yeah, a lot of us do have kind of contacts within the music industry or the music scene we can get like yeah crew down to mentor kind of people on the estate to upskill you know their ability whether it's with instruments or with recording processes um and that kind of stuff so yeah definitely putting the call out to um you know musicians and producers that are interested in getting involved it'd be great to run like yeah mentorship programs through the studio where we can all, you know, upskill ourselves in the different fields of recording. That sounds really good. So is that is that like a formal campaign? Are you asking people to, is there a number that people can call or something? Or a website? Um, the best way to get in contact with us is on Facebook. On um, There's a resident frequency um, studio page on Facebook. So, yeah, so yeah, get in contact with us that way or contact me directly, Izzy Brown. And um, yeah, we can we can start kind of putting people together to to make cool stuff. Tell us where you got what's the what are the origins of the name, resident frequency? What what's I'm I'm fascinated by the name. Oh, well, one of, I think Ben made that name up. Like we had a few different names. We were thinking of um, was it high rising studios, and but there's already some other things of a similar name. And then I think you know everyone was just sitting around and. Um, they were talking about resonance and frequencies, <laughs> and then we're like, oh, wait a minute, the residence, like the residence of the estate, yeah. yeah, resident frequency. So that became the name that stuck. Yeah, it, because it stands out. Like once once you say it once, it stands out, in your, and, and it doesn't necessarily, like I don't necessarily associate it with recording, but I do associate it with that particular recording studio, if that makes sense, if that makes any sense mm. to you. Yeah, well, I think it, it will, will be yeah, kind of like a, a, a voice to the residents. That's what happened at the launch, you know. We ended up having a whole lot of crew. We had people, you know, people rapping, people doing karaoke, people doing, like, 
60s rock covers, you know, it was like the resonant frequency is very diverse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it didn't count at all. Yeah. You know, from, from, from you know, all age groups, all language groups, you know, it's an all in, you know, the Vietnamese kind of karaoke, whatever, you know, anything could happen. So the resonant frequency of Collingwood is, a, you know, a diverse and wild beast, and hopefully we can capture some of that in this studio. Are there any other um, sort of community recording studios that you're aware of? There is. There's, um, I think in Fitzroy, there's one near Fitzroy Flat. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I think it's called Rising High Studios. Awesome. And I think, I'm not sure, I think it's probably a bit more, I guess, government-funded and kind of government-controlled, I think, so they probably have a lot more you know, only available between this hour and this hour if you book in kind of that vibe a bit more. Um, there's also one that the Jesuits do up on the corner of, um, yeah, just down the road from 3CR, I think, on Gertrude Street. Okay, so what makes... Old language Street. So, so how, how, how's, is there like, do you guys, how's it managed, for example? Is it like a committee of management or is it just the locals? Well, this is something, this is why we're probably quite different from the others, is we don't have any systems of management. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> at the moment, yet. Yeah, yet. Yeah. It's early days. Yeah. So at the moment, it's like, um, yeah, get in touch. Okay. Um, yeah, and, you know, come use it. Come, we'll teach you something, teach us something, we share, we do stuff, we make stuff together. Um, yeah, it's just really organic. There isn't really, we haven't really organised a booking system or anything like that exactly. But I guess once it gets more popular and more heard about, we probably will have to organise that kind of stuff. You know, we're still kind of navigating how to deal with, you know, security and shit, yeah, and that wow. kind of stuff. Yeah. That, that stuff is a bit tricky. And like, you know, who has the key and where they put the key and who left the thing on the thing and, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All those, all those things we all have to iron out, I guess. Once, but, you know, now so we're up. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.